Good evening. Uh, my name's Andrew Lee and this is Nick Terrell. Uh, we're here this evening for a virtual launch of Reconnected, a Community Builders Handbook. We'd like to begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people on whose lands we're meeting tonight. Dara Nuna, Dara Ngunnawal, Yongu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Ngunnawalwari, Dawawari, Dindi, Nanyalindinyin. We'd like to acknowledge any Indigenous people who are listening to us this evening. We're acutely aware of how ironic it is to be launching a book about community connectedness, connecting with you only virtually. We'd love to be doing this in a room packed with people because that's how we believe community connection can work best. But of course, social distancing applies. We'd like to thank ANU very much for providing us with this opportunity to connect virtually with you. We'd like to acknowledge too, uh, the great social connector of the book scene here in Canberra, Colin Steele, for being willing to provide us with this opportunity. Reconnected is a book that talks about how we can be a closer civic society. And it's born out of a concern that Australia has become disconnected. 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Disconnected, which tracked some of the problems in Australian community life. And we begin Reconnected by updating those figures and tracking through how Australian social connectedness has fared. Sadly, the picture isn't pretty. The TV show Neighbours launched in 1985, and over the 35 years since, Australians now know half as many of our true neighbours as we used to. The same survey reveals we have half as many close friends. Since the 1950s, churchgoing has fallen by two thirds. Since the 1980s, the union membership rate has fallen by two thirds. If you look at the number of associations per Australian, that number is now a quarter of where it was in the late 1970s. We've seen a fall in volunteering, which particularly affected the number of firefighter volunteers available when this summer's bushfires hit. From 2010 to 2019, the number of firefighter volunteers fell by a fifth, which placed extraordinary pressure on those battling the blazes last summer. We've seen a decline in donations. We've even seen a decline in Australians' willingness to complete government surveys, which provide a community benefit since they allow us to know how businesses are faring and how the labour market is doing. All of these trends have left Australia less a society of we and more a society of me. We've become more individualistic and less connected. But Reconnected isn't just about talking about the problem, it's about finding the solution. And for that, let me hand you over to Nick Terrell to talk about how we began tracking the groups that are doing a great job and learning from them to put together the lessons of Reconnected. Thank you, Andrew. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Nambri and the Ngunnawal people, and also to acknowledge the land was never ceded. So let's just jump into the, uh, how this all began. So at least six or seven years ago, I think this, uh, this issue again was, was coming up. As Andrew mentioned, um, he looked at this uh, in 2010, he looked at this in Disconnected, 
And of course, that was uh, about a trend. So seemed reasonable to check how that was going. And we started to set up some consultations around the country. By the end of the process, we had met with uh, over a thousand uh, different community builders and charity leaders from Perth to Darwin, Brisbane, uh, Hobart, Launceston, all over the country. Um, and we had been asking them what was working, what, what they could share with others if they were given the opportunity, and also what obstacles they were facing. And after uh, many fruitful sessions, uh, we learned a lot, uh, we took in a lot, and then we began to distill that and look at uh, what, what were the things that community builders across the country could learn from each other and share. So that was the start. And that, uh, I guess, in, in mentioning that, I want to acknowledge all the, the people who were a part of that and whose great ideas and enthusiasm and time and engagement we drew upon, who are all, I suppose, uh, you know, as Certainly as I researched uh, towards the end of this project and was writing and researching in, in more detail, uh, those were the people, I guess, who I felt I owed most to and was really working on behalf of. And not, not all of those uh, lessons and all of those stories are in the book. We would love to have been able to, um, to represent everything uh, that, that we learned, but um, that would have been a vast tone. But it's important that um, that people realise that there, there, there's a, a sort of wealth. Uh, there's, this is the tip of the iceberg that is um, guided by all that stuff that went on beneath, which drew in a lot of people who made important contributions. One thing I guess I also wanted to acknowledge from the outset and uh, about social capital, which is you know, underneath this whole reconnected idea, there is this desire to to build this resource, is that while uh, social capital is something that a, a lot of people enjoy and see the benefit of, there is a, a, a greater challenge for many, many people who, like any form of capital, have less and can, you know, who have less to begin with and don't have that sort of capacity to, to bring it to bear on their lives in the way that um, others who are born with maybe more advantage or opportunity can do. So that's uh, something that's important to remember um, and it's something that a lot of our, the people that we looked at certainly were aware of as well. Um, like any form of capital, the less you have, the harder it is to build your, your resources. Um, and that's, that's one of the, the big problems that, that a lot of these stories address. Um, having said that, um, I guess uh, another thing, a, a bit of context, a bit of topical things that, that went on uh, towards the end of the process, actually. Andrew, you would remember this. Um, uh, first of all, as we were sort of bringing things to a, to a finalist draft, bushfires spread across the country and a lot of communities were uh, put in very difficult positions, uh, drawing on all the resources that uh, a really well-connected community will naturally have. Um, and in some cases finding uh, real strains and challenges, but also seeing uh, in a very real, concrete, um, visceral way uh, why it matters, why these connections matter, and um, the, the benefits that they bring. Um, and then just as that um, subsided somewhat, uh, coronavirus uh, 
hit the shores. And um, again, that, as we sit here in our virtual launch, uh, that changed a lot of the way people were able to, to interact and to support each other. And that really uh, crystallized again, a lot of um, really important, uh, well, for, for a lot of people who maybe hadn't had to think about the, the networks and uh, the support that they had in their um, community, in their neighbourhoods, among their work colleagues, uh, sporting clubs, um, other uh, groups that they're a part of, um, what it meant if that was put under threat or in jeopardy, um, and what, what, what priority they would put on um, sort of rebuilding or shoring up those connections. So those things really, uh, to some extent, energized some of the urgency of what we were trying to bring into this book. And I think they really did crystallize or focus some of the, um, what we were trying to sort of deliver from this process. Thanks, Nick. And one of the things that uh, I really enjoyed working on during the book was uh, engaging with the question of how technology is affecting our lives. Uh, it was something that uh, I touched on and disconnected, but in the decades since, there's been so much more that's been written on this. And so we have a chapter called Cyber Connecting, uh, which is about how to mindfully use technology in a way that augments face-to-face -face interactions rather than supplanting it. Uh, we're worried uh, that uh, the uh, period since 2005 uh, has seen quite a significant worsening of mental health among young Australians. Uh, the share of high schoolers who say that they're very stressed was a third in 2005 uh, and is now up to half. Uh, we've even seen indicators of worse outcomes such as self-harm. And these measures, measures seem to have worsened most for teenage girls, uh, which is consistent with the notion that uh, the way in which uh, uh, girls seek to uh, harm one another when they're fighting uh, can be through damaging social networks rather than through physical interactions, as tends to be more common with boys. Uh, so much of what we're seeing uh, troubles me as, as, a, as a parent, uh, and yet there also is a wonderful wealth of information out there about how to use these technologies well. Uh, in the workplace, uh, Dana Boyd advocates uh, an email sabbatical. Uh, others have suggested uh, getting rid of the notifications on your smartphone for social media apps. Uh, pointing out that they're designed by the same people that uh, design poker machines and uh, understand how to exploit our psychological biases. Uh, there's Silicon Valley designers uh, who are much more reticent than most of my friends to give their kids tablets and let them have unfettered access to the internet, who uh, have a lot more rules around it in order to ensure that kids have the time for uh, backyard soccer games and informal interactions, and that these addictive technologies don't take over our lives. And we've also seen such wonderful use of technology during the pandemic. Uh, Catherine Barrett, whose name is featured on the front of our book, uh, is uh, set up a page called The Kindness Pandemic, a Facebook page which invited Australians to share stories uh, of generosity and kindness through the uh, coronavirus lockdown. Uh, people like the uh, neighbour who uh, saw that uh, some, the, the person living next door uh, was doing it tough, uh, homeschooling kids, and so dropped off a coffee on the doorstep in the morning. 
the people who uh, paid grocery bills for the uh, tearful person in front of them at the supermarket who'd forgotten their credit card. Uh, and at a time in which the media was full of stories of people fighting over toilet paper and supermarket aisles, the, the kindness pandemic showed the best of Australia and encouraged other people to reconnect. We talked too about Astrid Jorgensen's Couch Choir, an initiative that flowed out of her pub choir, uh, choir initiatives uh, in Brisbane, uh, which had brought thousands of people together to sing. Uh, obviously, singing isn't uh, feasible during a pandemic, and so Couch Choir crowdsourced uh, people to sing songs like uh, David Bowie's Heroes, uh, bringing together uh, Australians and, and people around the world uh, in order to remind ourselves uh, of those yourself. connections. Including uh, including myself, yes, I got my uh, three, three little boys uh, singing uh, uh, one of the uh, killer's songs that, uh, that Astrid Jorgensen uh, put together. Uh, so there is great potential, we think, to, uh, to CyberConnect, uh, but it's, it's important that we get on top of those, uh, those technologies uh, rather than allowing them to, uh, to, to get on top of us. Uh, Nick, do you want to say something about uh, some of your other favourite bits of the book? Uh, yes, I do. So um, I thought I might focus on um, some of, well, the chapter that is specifically about social connectors, um, social purpose and social connection. A lot of the, well, the entire book is about people who are have bringing people together, increasing participation, but that chapter in particular had uh, people who either had set out with that purpose or had discovered that they were achieving that end uh, with great success alongside some other goal perhaps that they, they thought they were best serving. And a quote that I wanted to maybe start that discussion with was, which I will just grab because I did want to get this, this right, uh, was from Nick Maisie, who started uh, Befriend in, mm. in Perth. Uh, he was working at a university, uh, he was training to be an occupational therapist and he was a, a liaison um, of sorts and he got an email from a, a guy named Tim out of the blue and it just said, I don't have any friends and I'm wondering if anyone is interested in getting to know me. And uh, that struck uh, Nick. Uh, this was coming from a, a, a young man, it was uh, so an, an adult writing to him as an, another adult saying, don't have any friends, um, you know, what should I do? How's this gonna, um, how, how shall we work this out? I, I'm interested, I want, I want to make friends, I'm just not sure how to do it. Um, and uh, I guess for, for Nick Maisie, that was a, a striking thing and it kind of changed his direction a little and he sort of decided, well, okay, let's, let's look at this and let's solve this problem. Um, adults aren't, you know, they get, through their, their childhood, adolescence, you sort of bring people, mm. you bring mm. friendship groups with you. It's sort of part of um, education and you know university, whatever. But when you get to um, a certain age, the sort of structures maybe change a little. And if, if you, you move city or you uh, maybe a relationship breaks down, then a lot of people find there's just a question mark: how do how do I make friends? Um, and so Nick uh, set up Befriend. Um, and one of the, the main things that I, I guess struck me about Befriend was the, the focus on just simply the invitation, uh, how important that is to just make the invitation to people and keep making it. And 
uh, once you've uh, got people along. And these seem, seem very, uh, I suppose, intuitive things that people maybe think, well, of course, but when people come, you welcome them. And you have people uh, whose, whose role is to, to set up these opportunities, these invite people to these uh, situations and welcome them and make sure that a whole group understands that there are people there who, who want them to be there and want to know about them. And these sorts of, I guess, intentional uh, social architecture structures for people who aren't sure what they're supposed to do, where they fit in, it, it just initiates that process and they begin to learn. Another group that um, had a similar, I suppose, uh, talking to the founder of this group, which was Patricia Lauria, uh, the group being Friendline, mm. uh, I was talking about how Friendline came into being. It struck me as a, an unusual, uh, everyone I'm sure, uh, listening to this as head of lifeline and everyone's familiar with the concept of a, a helpline that people in crisis can can reach out to and get some counseling or some guidance some assistance someone to listen to to their their problems um in in crisis times and offer some support friendline is like that but it's it's not about crisis and there's no there isn't that jeopardy, I suppose, about the outcome. And so when the friendline operators are talking to someone, they totally turn the, the principles of the crisis line upside down. The crisis lines are supposed to be uh, quite controlled. They're impersonal, not in the mm. sense that they're not empathetic, but they, the, they talk about the, the person who's rung yes. speaks and expresses um, their situation. Friendline counsellors are trained to talk, to introduce things about themselves. So they will reciprocate and they will throw things back at the, the person who's rung. They are encouraged and trained and guided to introduce their own personality into the conversation. And the reason for that is because they're not just, uh, it's not just a more interesting and rewarding conversation for the the caller, they, uh, the caller, if they continue this interaction and call again, they learn how to have a conversation mm. and how to share um, and sort of communicate about themselves, which for many people in this situation calling on the friend line, they don't have other opportunities to do that. So it, it actually trains them in, in a, uh, an area that maybe they, they need to um, strengthen uh, experience skills, social skills that maybe have trailed off a little. And again, that service came about because the, Patricia was uh, just hearing that people were missing this, that mm. um, they weren't in crisis. They weren't in the situation where they would call Lifeline or feel that they could or should, but they needed some sort of support. Um, so this this service came about and uh, particularly uh, during the last six months they have found a lot more people calling which again has been for them I suppose it's shown the value of what they're doing um, but also uh, I guess the need and uh, I guess on that principle uh, another another organization who again had a, a simple intentional sort of approach to this was uh, Lively, set up by Anna Donaldson uh, in Queensland, I believe. So 
Anna, I guess, saw two problems that, that really engaged her, and one was uh, young people who were struggling to get into the workforce. Uh, again, this goes back to the question of social capital and who has it and who doesn't mm. and why. Um, she was seeing young people who, uh, who hadn't had, they didn't have the networks or they didn't have the experience or they were struggling to, to put together that sort of piece of the resume that says to an employer, um, I can show up routinely, I'm reliable, I can, you know, I can, uh, I can be a good employee. Um, and these people were, so they were struggling to get into the, the job um, market. And she was also seeing older people who were both lonely, but also uh, struggling with the digital skills that really can, um, for maybe an isolated uh, person, begin some of that re-engagement and give them ways to communicate with relatives or friends who, who aren't around. So she put those two together and she developed this program where uh, young people would be matched with a, an older person who they would go, they'd be matched up and they would be, they would effectively have two goals. One was to um, teach digital literacy. So the older person would begin that sort of adventure in the wide world of technology, but also they were trained and, and their objective was to create a, a friendship. So they were, uh, again, and quite intentionally, uh, there was an element to the training that was giving them an, a, an empathy and knowledge of perhaps uh, the kind of life that the people, the older generation, the people they were supporting and um, teaching, what their life might have been like and some experiences that they could um, relate to or sort of empathise with and uh, just to sort of start that um, bridging of the, the generation gap. So again, uh, a, 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 it, it sort of has a, a symmetry that makes sense, but um, that, that element of seeing what, what might be the shortfall if you just threw these people together and making sure that, that you'd already sort of prepared the way there. A similar, I guess, uh, and the, these are just some of the the clever things that really stuck with me. Um, a program called Our Place, which the, uh, the Australian Centre of Social um, Innovation Taxi in Adelaide uh, developed, uh, Carla Clarence and Kerry Jones. And this was to address a problem, which is a very serious problem, women over 55 who are at risk of homelessness. And uh, there's many reasons for that, economics, low super and and not only are, i suppose are they financially vulnerable but they're also at risk that things aren't going to improve perhaps mm. for them they're at the point where the vulnerabilities that have built up through having to leave the workforce um, to raise children or perhaps they've separated from uh, someone and, and been left uh, with a sort of uh, an unstable housing situation uh, so there's this population of of um, women in that demographic who who were vulnerable um, and at much higher risk of homelessness than maybe the rest of the population. And when uh, Carla and Kerry decided that this was a problem that needed to be addressed, they looked at some overseas models. Um, there are uh, shared housing sort of models in uh, very good ones in um, Holland and Sweden. Uh, where um, young people and old people can sort of be uh, sort of find a, a 
setting where they can live in the same sort of, um, I guess, high-density kind of scenario and there's a kind of mutual support socialization. But when they advertised or sort of went out looking for subjects in Australia, they, they uh, were overwhelmed by the, uh, the willingness of subjects, the female subjects over 55 were all there and keen, but they couldn't find the younger cohort to match them with. So mm. they figured, well, this confirms the problem. Therefore, let's not co-house these women with younger people. Let's try and co-house them together. So that created the, the next step, I guess, the problem that they needed to fix was, well, you've got these people who need now to share their lives, but that's, that's a hard problem. That's not something you can do like that. Um, so what, we, what they developed was a process whereby, at, in an accelerated way, they could build the trust that two people would need to mm. bring the resources of two people, which would give them the stability that, that re would really set them up um, and which was so, uh, so much needed for this group without the risk that maybe it would go bad or that uh, it was too sudden or the, the match wasn't right. And again, um, they found an interesting thing that it didn't matter so much, I guess, ideologies or, or um, ideals and sort of political, you know, where do they sit? What mattered was values that sat below that. Again, that, that guided uh, a program that, that they'll sort of develop um, and that will allow probably, it, it's, a, it's a module of sorts that um, can be utilised uh, as, as this problem is better addressed through, through more sort of established housing programs. This will sort of sit behind that and make sure that the matches work. And one of the things we tried to do was not just to tell wonderful stories, but also to uh, work out what are the golden threads that connect them together. So uh, we were inspired by the bank robber Willie Sutton, who, when asked why he robbed banks, said, well, because that's where the money is. Uh, so we came up with the idea of Sutton's law of social capital. Uh, if you want to build social capital, you should go where the need is. And one of the things that I love about Lively and Taxi is that both of them focus on areas where there is substantial need uh, as they look to build social capital. Uh, so Nick, in uh, advertising for the uh, uh, book conversation tonight, we've got a, a number of questions, so uh, I think we can take it in turns to uh, throw them to one another. Uh, the, uh, the opening question is from Rodley. How do you think this COVID-19 pandemic has contributed to reconnecting Australian communities? Um, well, I think, um, as I mentioned, uh, we found that question really a useful one in, in the final months putting this book together. You've already alluded to, uh, for instance, the kindness pandemic, which is a, it's a, a Facebook page, a Facebook group, and now a, a, a more a broader network of information and connections, which Dr. Catherine Barrett set up in Melbourne at one point in the very early days of uh, isolation and the sort of public health measures, they had hit uh, close to 600,000 page uh, likes, people who had connected. Amazing, and that happened very quickly. Yeah. I think 560,000 people maybe where it peaked um, around the, the world. Uh, I guess most people can probably sort of recall there was a sort of natural stage where, you know, things that you couldn't do without, you sort of made sure that you kind of 
felt secure, that you things were you were all right on those shelter and staples sort of front. But then the next thing that people were really doing was, well, now that I can't interact with my networks, how do I fill that gap and how do I make mm -hmm. sure that the networks that I'm a part of or that I know are important are still healthy? And that was uh, really striking. Uh, it happened across many different fronts. Uh, there were many different groups, particularly uh, on a small scale, neighbourhood scale, streets, people setting up off-the-cuff quick-fire mutual aid groups, um, people going around with flyers and offering help. So I guess it really... And, and a lot of people, I, I guess, got a, a very direct experience of... the, Or at least it, it made them sort of really see what things might be like without those networks um, and if if they were to fail or or really weaken beyond that point where um, you could rely on them or get the benefits of them and uh, what that would look like and I guess in a way um, a, a theme I guess that we we do that is important in the book is that these networks are very useful they're good for your sort of good for you across a, a range of different metrics but they're also just very enjoyable they make people happy and satisfied and feel fulfilled so for people to get that experience and in some senses i'm sure there was an element that a lot of people had more time and they were spending more time in their in their community in the neighborhood but it was very clear that people would would put the energy in and i guess the the question for all of us now is what happens what happens next um it, it's it's undeniable that that these networks crystallized they they came uh, they came into being or they they muscled up when we needed them um for some um but what happens as we as we continue um if we establish a new normal or if there things were to return to to previously uh how do we make sure that that people sort of maintain that enthusiasm mm. and and what were the what were the really meaningful parts of it that we can um, put in the bank Yes, because I think about the uh, distinction between September 11th when uh, there was a temporary surge in community connectedness in America that very quickly went away and World War II, which seemed to put in place uh, a much more lasting change in the uh, civic connectedness of uh, what we now call the greatest generation. Yes, indeed. Um, so I will now put a question to you on behalf of Natalie, who asks, how important do you think neighbourhoods are in building community? And did you find examples of best practice in building community at the neighbourhood level? Natalie, uh, we loved the, uh, the way in which uh, a team of residents in Western Sydney set out to uh, connect their community to save their local park. Uh, Liverpool Council wrote to them saying that uh, they were uh, getting rid of a number of uh, unused local parks and uh, one of the, the park in their street was scheduled for development. And the people in the street responded by mobilising together and becoming politically active. 
the street uh, hadn't been previously a, a hub of social capital, uh, but became much more connected as the community mobilised to engage with the council, uh, not to see the uh, park turned into more housing, but to see it turned into a better park. Uh, so the uh, Farringdon Farringdon Court is it, Nick? Uh, Farringdon Crescent. Farringdon Crescent. Farringdon Collaborative was and the group, the sort of notional name of the group. Yes. Together, yeah. So I, I love that uh, the the Farringdon Collaborative's uh, ability to not only push back against what they saw as an unfair decision, uh, but to build something that was uh, was much more lasting. I hope that many of the mutual aid groups that have emerged through coronavirus will uh, will do the do the same. Uh, it's striking to me in in my own neighbourhood how straightforward that is. Uh, my wife and I organise our uh, uh, annual street get together every December, uh, and it is almost comically straightforward to organise. We take last year's invitation, change the date, change uh, uh, change a few a few details so it doesn't quite look like a copy paste exercise photocopy the invitation and put it in our neighbours' letterboxes. Uh, when the appointed day comes, uh, BYO ensures that there's plenty more food and drink than anyone can consume, uh, and we spend an hour pleasantly chatting away with our neighbours. Uh, it's worth doing because we like our neighbours, but it would be worth doing even, we, even, if, even if we didn't like our neighbours, uh, because that community connected, connection uh, lasts right through the year. Uh, so there's terrific ways in which I think it's it's straightforward to maintain those connections. Uh, Nick, let me uh, throw to you the question from Sam. How do you think communities can become better prepared for the upcoming climate challenges? Well, that, that is one of the, uh, again, having had the, the final stages um, of pulling all these ideas together, being in a climate of at least partial emergency and um, a lot of really serious challenges to, to how we want our communities to, to go on, um, particularly you know when they seem, there seem to be elements of that under threat. Um, and obviously climate change holds that kind of threat. I guess perhaps the, the political, we have a chapter on political participation and that's important um, for people to see ways that uh, collectively they can get outcomes, find, find points in the political or, the, um, or maybe it's uh, the community level, points where they can exert influence and mm. change things. Uh, maybe a, a good parallel is uh, Amnesty International's My New Neighbour, which is a program designed to, uh, to change the way some parts of the country looked at refugees. So it's a, a difficult issue for, for some uh, and, and an issue that had been made very controversial by certain voices, certain viewpoints and political styles had really turned that into a, a divisive discussion. My New Neighbour took an approach that took uh, not just a former refugee, um, who maybe was integrating into a, a new community, but took a person from that community who had played a part um, and put them together to to go to communities and say the two sides of that story. This is um, this is what it meant to me to be integrated into this community. But for the person uh, who was playing the role of the speak spokesperson for that community, 
um, how valuable that was for them and all the, the benefits that they got from that, that new relationship or that involvement. So I think there's a, probably a similar challenge on the, the climate change, the challenges there, how to, how to get past that divisive political narrative. But there's also some practical lessons and, and particularly a group that um, is not in the book, but um, strategies, I suppose, that, that were reflected in other parts, which is building um, wide partnerships. So um, there was a group from the um, Geelong peripheral around Melbourne, a regional area there that had become really, really effective by absorbing all the different uh, expertise and the different sort of the coastlands group, the grasslands group, the, um, they had uh, you know, planning experts, that all the aligned sort of interests and the, the people who had a conservation sort of mindset or a, or a planning approach to, to climate and to habitat gradually had developed this sort of body of not just expertise but influence which made them very effective uh, in when when they identified a solution mm. they already had a broad um, array of sort of uh, they had paths forward uh, in all the areas that they needed to and again um, that's the strength of that um, those bridging bonds outside these tight networks that had their own purpose but they developed the networks that made them a formidable uh, alignment of um yeah so they got things done because yes. they they could move effectively in all the fronts they needed to okay well, this is a question from shoba how can we rebuild our communities after covid19 so i think uh, shoba this is partly about trying to uh, do more than one thing at the same time if we can uh, one of the ideas that we flag up in Reconnected is uh, uh, a repurposing of an old George Orwell line. Uh, in 1984, uh, people remember there is uh, a removal of a whole lot of words and creation of uh, new newspeak words, one of which is double plus good. Uh, 1984 is a dystopia, but we think in our Reconnected utopia, we can take that idea of double plus good social capital. Uh, in which we're trying to do two good things at the same time. Uh, one of the examples I really enjoy is uh, the Hunter Intrepid Landcare groups, uh, which have uh, waterway cleanups, so you can get fit and improve the natural environment at the same time. Uh, in Britain, the good gym pairs runners uh, with lonely older people who get a visit once a week and are referred to as the trainer. Uh, so the reason for getting out of bed on a Saturday morning uh, isn't just you want to go and stretch your legs. It's because there is an older person who needs a visit. Obviously, this has been put on pause during COVID, uh, but it's something that I think will come back because it has an enduring value. There's people who want to get fit and, and want to be doing something good in the community. I also love the way in which Greening Australia has created singles tree planting events in which you get to improve the natural environment and potentially meet the love of your life. 
so, so do you plant here often? Is the uh, the, the line they uh, they, they suggest. Uh, but there's also plenty of uh, ch chat uh, about how you can build those sort of informal connections. It's a bit like a, a romantic version of befriend or friend line, uh, helping to augment face-to-face -face connections within the structure of a terrific volunteer organisation. Uh, and Shoba, we really admired many of the groups uh, who were thinking creatively about how to help uh, serve more than one purpose, how to do double plus good social capital. Nick, the next question is from uh, Vincent. Uh, what suggestions would you recommend for those seeking to build meaningful purpose-based communities online? I guess the first thing I would suggest would be to, if possible, um, I, there are, if possible, to tie it to something uh, practical and concrete. So to to use that community to bring about something in in the uh, the real world, the um, physical world, and. Uh, as an example, uh, Gather My Crew, which is essentially it's a, it's a platform to galvanise uh, loose social connections into a, a network that you might traditionally imagine a, a village would, would sort of provide to anyone known in the community. It, so uh, Gather My Crew allows people to, to set up a, a, a small network. It's effectively a, a kind of closed social network, but it's tied to tasks. So someone who, who is experiencing uh, you know, an extra burden, there might be illness or there might be, uh, I think a, a nice example, a, a man uh, who was a regular at a dog park and one day he, he broke his leg and he couldn't uh, come to the park and the, the people at the park noticed he wasn't there. They noticed that this this regular was missing. And some of the people found out, you know, they did a bit of asking around. They found that he'd been um, confined to home. And uh, they put together a network from the dog park. They signed people up at the dog park on this platform and were able to share out the tasks that he needed to uh, while he was unable to to sort of do his own shopping or walk his dog, for instance. So that's a you know it's an online tool. It's using the technology to to generate or to extract uh, the benefits of that sort of what what he might not have thought of as his tribe or his community, and they may not have also. But um, in that circumstance, it distilled that out of the the social setting but probably i guess if we're staying in the online world it's the the most compelling uh, example that we saw perhaps was digivol and citizen science which is mm. a vast and impressive network of people who share a commitment to um to science and to uh, geography uh, biology um, natural science um, and through the uh, wonders of digitization and the um, uh, platform that was developed by um, the Australian Museum in Sydney, Rhiannon Stevens and some colleagues who uh, explained to us uh, how this works. It's an amazing, it links into a, an amazing and very impressive and quite absorbing uh, world which I really wanted to go into a lot more as I was writing the book but couldn't because I had to write the book. Did uh, you try it out yourself? 
I did. I was able to observe some, I, I uh, monitored some animal, some camera traps in uh, sub-Saharan Africa to check on what specimens were in a certain area. So it's things like that that, you, that are amazing mm. um, and that you can do from anywhere. So Digivol, Citizen Science, these uh, platforms that allow people to, to find other people like them. There are elements of that or people who share their interest, but who they, they couldn't um, interact with uh, by any means without that. And also people who can volunteer and support causes and purposes that, that are meaningful to them that for various access reasons or just convenience um, they couldn't get to. So these platforms um, and that, that online sort of uh, purpose um, has allowed people who, who just can't do traditional volunteering to, to make a contribution and to, to feel that fulfillment, that sense of purpose and I guess my favourite little story that tops that off is um, Theresa Van, Van der Huel, I think is uh, an amateur fungi expert from the south coast who was Digivol's top volunteer. Um, as we were riding, we were tracking how many volunteer tasks she'd done. Um, it went from, uh, I think, 450,000, she's working up towards 550,000. It sort of was hitting a new peak every time I looked. So she's uh, just a huge contributor to the digitization project through Digivol, which they could never achieve without this online support, um, and which will make, uh, which has a, a, an added benefit of um, bringing the natural, uh, the collection and the, all the data and the information that they have in that collection will now be available to scientists all around the world, again, through that online community. And Teresa, she remembered uh, her favourite, I suppose, reward and her sense, I suppose, a, a way that she sort of showed that, you know, it's, it's not just doing some tasks, it's not just mm. sort of uh, the leaderboard ticking off the numbers and moving up. Her favourite project, which was transcribing some Antarctic diaries, and the museum was able to organise for her to, to have a, a phone conversation and to interact with the scientists who had produced those diaries. So for her, it was like, it confirmed that, you know, this, this big project that um, was very remote from her if, if she was, you know, not able to do this through the digital and online space, that she was a part of that and that, you know, it was appreciated and acknowledged. Yes, and it's a reminder that the uh, world's most popular uh, encyclopedia, Wikipedia, is uh, volunteer produced. Uh, the world's best used operating system, Linux, is uh, uh, another piece of uh, volunteer labour. Uh, uh, the next question is from Wendy, and she has asked, do you think our work ethic and how we value productivity versus care need to change in order to build community, and do you look at that in your book? Uh, Wendy, we, uh, we do, and we don't see any contradiction between a well-functioning economy and a strong society. Uh, indeed, uh, the, one of the, the striking things as an economist looking at social capital is to see how fundamental it is to good business interactions. Uh, if people don't trust one another, then they can't do business with a handshake. They have to write painfully extensive contracts because they have to be worried about being ripped off all the time. Uh, commerce flows more smoothly 
uh, with social capital. So we think that a more connected society will be a more productive society. We also learned a lot, Wendy, from looking at how some of Australia's best corporates are engaging uh, with philanthropy. Uh, there's a, a lovely tale out of uh, the technology company, company Atlassian, which had a complicated sign-up process for its workplace giving program. Uh, you could choose from a vast menu of potential charities to, to give towards, and very few of their employees did so. Then they revamped the system to choose just one charity and a six-second sign-up, and they saw enrolments go through the roof. We've also seen some really interesting initiatives among corporates uh, in ensuring that their volunteering programs uh, aren't mere, mere pretense, but are actually using the best skills of their uh, uh, employees. So if you're an accounting company uh, and your idea of uh, corporate volunteering is to send a bunch of accountants to go and paint a fence on a Friday afternoon, that's probably not to their comparative advantage. But if you think about it a bit longer, if you partner with appropriate organisations, say using the uh, skills and wherewithal of Volunteering Australia, uh, you might find a whole set of little charities and not-for-profits that would love some advice from professional accountants in order to be able to function better. Uh, so we've really admired some of the best work that's being done in corporate Australia. Moving away from the narrow Milton Friedman notion that the, the purpose of a corporation is merely to add value to the shareholders, and recognising that good corporations are there for their customers, for their workers, and for the broader community as a whole, uh, and that uh, companies have an important role to play uh, in reconnection. Uh, Nick, I noticed we've, uh, we've got uh, just five minutes left to go on the, uh, on the podcast. I wonder if um, there's something that you uh, enjoyed about the things that we found in the book that, uh, that, you, that you wanted to, uh, to close on, some favourite chapter or observation or idea? Um, I wouldn't uh, confine it to a particular chapter or a particular idea. I was, uh, I guess, again and again uh, impressed and really, I guess, uh, I felt the enthusiasm so often from the people that I was talking to. Research is, to begin with, an abstract thing. I, we came across a lot of uh, good ideas, a lot of good um, platforms, principles, approaches. But when you talk to the people who actually, through their own experience and through their interaction with other people or their understanding of a particular need or a particular problem, the people who had committed their life, their career, um, all their resources and energy to solving that problem, I, I was just uh, again and again just impressed and uh, felt really privileged and uh, I guess excited to be able to put some of their stories and, and try and convey a sense of that enthusiasm which I feel, I don't know, I hope that the readers um, will see and, and feel the same way. There's just some uh, really great um, examples of how fulfilling it can be to, to achieve these kind of effects and to, to uh, take that step that brings people, allows people to feel, to find their tribe or to, to connect to a purpose. It, yeah, I just again and again that, that impressed me. And I, that, I guess that's at the start when I acknowledged all those 
people that we learned from, that's why, I, that's what I feel was very important um, and that I wanted to be in the book. What about you? Uh, I was much the same. I mean, it, it is that, that real irony, isn't it, where you look at the numbers, you see that Australia is much less socially connected than we were a generation ago. And then you, you walk into the room and you meet these amazing people and they just blow you away. Uh, we have a chapter there where we showcase uh, four of the great uh, social entrepreneurs we met. Uh, Matt Napier, uh, whose uh, uh, campaigns for to raise awareness and resources around global poverty. Uh, a man who has bounced an AFL ball across Australia and kicked a soccer ball across Africa. Uh, we talk about Juliet Wright, who founded uh, Give It, uh, a platform which operates as a virtual warehouse for allowing people to uh, donate a, a laptop or a washing machine uh, to somebody who's lost everything in floods. Uh, Jack Manning Bancroft, uh, who founded the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience uh, and who uh, came to realise that uh, his uh, affluent and privileged friends uh, could actually be brought on board uh, and could be some of his greatest allies. And, and he says that uh, uh, he changed his view of, uh, of those people in his Sydney University College uh, as he saw so many of them rally around. Uh, and then Beck Scott, who uh, turned uh, her life into one of building a social purpose enterprise in Melbourne uh, and uh, then acting not only to create jobs for people who didn't have them, uh, but also to uh, provide an incubator for a whole lot of social purpose enterprises. Uh, we've, uh, we've come to the end of our uh, hour's conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us tonight. Uh, thanks to Colin, to ANU, uh, to uh, Black Ink for uh, putting, our, putting our book together uh, and for being part of the conversation. If you've got more ideas to share, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, please drop us an email, pick up the phone and tell us what you're doing to create a more connected Australia.